I like words. I'm a word fan. Uh, Eric, one of the guys who works here, makes fun of me for that. I like words. You ever use words that you know how to use in a sentence, but if you had to define it, you'd be like, wait, what does that mean? What does that mean again? You ever do that? All right, like, let's think about it. Like, uh, uh, you ever used existential in a sentence? And then someone's like, what does that mean? You're like, uh, it's the thing with the existentialism. You know, it's like, you can't use a word to define a word. Or colloquial is another one. You ever use colloquial? Or hear somebody use colloquial? Define colloquial. You're like, uh, it's, um, you know, it's like when stuff's colloquial. <laughs> like that. Um, albeit, albeit, like sounds super fancy. And again, it's like you'd use it in a sentence. You could probably use it correctly in a sentence. But define it. You're like, uh, it's the, the word you put in to make it sound like you watch Jeopardy. Uh, or ironic. Is one of the, ironic. Right, ironic. We use that all the time. But if you define it, it refers to something that is the opposite of expectations, right? Not Alanis Morissette, something that is simply unfortunate. You've ruined it for all of us. And every upper millennial, like in my demographic, like, I get it. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Got it. Well, discipleship is another one of those words, right? Discipleship is another one of those words. The church uses the word discipleship all the time. It sounds great. It's a good word. I like that word, discipleship. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. All right, so if we we're like, go ahead. People are like, yeah, you go first. And we, so we started this year in a series on uh, discipleship, on the framework of discipleship that we're talking about, on the three relationships, going through those through the book of Mark. We're talking about that following Jesus is lived out in the context of three relationships primarily, the relationship with God, relationship with the church, relationship with the world. So we talked about what that looks like. But as we pick up this new series in the second half of the book of Mark, we're going to talk about what does it look like to be a disciple? What does it look like to be a disciple? How do we follow Jesus? How do we be a disciple? So let's start at the beginning. All right, what's a disciple, right? Disciple, just the word, someone who believes deeply in someone or something and lives according to those beliefs. So when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about making disciples of, you know, Jesus. It's always a good place to start. For our purposes, we're saying a disciple is someone who experiences and extends the love of Jesus. Someone who experiences and extends the love of Jesus. And we're going to be, as we start this new series, be looking more specifically about how Jesus talked about himself, his purpose, what following him really looks like through the second half of the book of Mark. We're going to be digging into what a disciple is so we know what one looks like and how we can follow Jesus. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Mark Chapter 9, verse 30. We're going to be reading this together. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Let's read together. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. 
Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So we're going to be diving into this. There's a lot here. We don't have time to get all of it. But we're going to be unpacking some of this stuff because Jesus really, a lot happens and Jesus says a lot of stuff. The first thing that we're going to talk about, though, right, at the, right, at the, right off the bat, the first thing we got to get out in the open amongst ourselves as friends is this. Disciples are real people. These guys are real people. And that's important for us to know. We talk about being a disciple. This is not be some perfect spiritual robot who never makes a mistake, who never messes up. It just says every, their life is perfectly together. How dare you make a mistake once? That's not what we're talking about. If so, we should all leave. That's not what we're talking about. These are real people, right? We're going to look at three things the disciples do up front. This is a freebie. We're just, just kind of set the table for us. The first is the disciples have questions. Let me give you some background on where we are, right? So Jesus has just uh, experienced the transfiguration, the beginning uh, of Mark chapter 9. He's revealed in his glory. The, the disciples he brought with him, just their minds are blown. And then he, he performs a miracle. He's just doing this incredible stuff because he's Jesus. And they're walking back. And this is really a pivot point in the close of his public ministry, right? His public ministry is ending now. And instead, he's preparing himself to head to Jerusalem to fulfill the mission that God has sent him for. Right? And so when Jesus says to these guys, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he'll rise. This is not the first time he said that. This is the second time he has said that. He's telling them what's coming. And these guys, verse 20, 32 tells us, did not understand what he meant. They got some questions. He's outlining his coming death and resurrection, and they still don't get it. And if we're honest, it's not terribly surprising because what Jesus is talking about, Jesus radically inverts the cultural expectations of who the Messiah would be in so many different ways. Right? You've, if you've been here at any length of time, you might have heard us talk about this before, but these guys are waiting for a Jewish Rambo. They're waiting for a, a, this Jewish king to come in and kick their enemies' butts and take names and kick the Romans out and... and defeat their enemies and set up the Jewish people as a, as a nation again. They're, they're looking for a conqueror to come. And so they must be waiting. Like, listen, we've seen Jesus do stuff. I mean, I don't know. I don't see him carrying a sword, but maybe we'll just figure this thing out as we get there. I don't know, but I'm waiting for this moment. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to die, they're going, I'm so, wait a minute, what? That, that can't be right. The idea that the Messiah would die made no sense to them. They don't understand how all these parts come together. They are with Jesus, and yet the full picture doesn't make sense. The disciples have questions, and if we're honest, so do we. That's okay. Questions are good. Disciples don't have to have everything figured out. Disciples have questions, and so do we. The second thing we see here about disciples is disciples have fears. Disciples have fears, right? They did not understand what he meant, and what? Casually asked him, because they knew he would tell them. They were afraid to ask him about it. They were afraid to ask him about it. Well, why would they be afraid? I mean, there's real fear involved here for them. They don't specifically outline it here, but I think there's a couple good suggestions. One, maybe, maybe it's fear of the unknown. Right? What is Jesus saying? What does this all mean? Maybe it's fear that what he's saying is true. Maybe it's fear of losing Jesus. What if what he's saying is true? What if he dies? What if this thing is real? Their friend and their teacher is gone, but it's more than that. 
Without Jesus, this movement collapses. Without Jesus, this movement falls apart and the Romans and the Jewish leaders have been so antagonistic to Jesus, now come after the disciples. If Jesus dies, if Jesus is killed for this stuff, well, they're the ones that have been hanging out with him. Maybe they're next. Maybe it's a more tangible relational fear. Maybe it's fear of being corrected. The last time one of them tried to push back on Jesus saying this kind of stuff, it was Peter in Mark chapter eight. And Jesus called him out, said, get behind me, Satan. And so the other guys are going, I don't need that, man. Let's let Peter be in that club by himself. But there's real fear here. Disciples have fears and so do we. So do we. Last that we see is that disciples have flaws. And this is my favorite part of the story. They were arguing about who was the greatest. Arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. And I picture them tallying up who's done what in some sort of first century mathematical formula to determine who has done the most and deserves the position of honor. They're like, yeah, you got the blind guy, but I got those two lame guys and that tube over one. I mean, that's gotta be worth more. So yeah, but I had the blind guy and the lame guy and like the demon possessed girl. It's like, they're adding it up, feeling good about themselves. And again, I love this part of the story. I love this part of the story because Jesus says to them, what were you arguing about on the road, guys? This isn't their first rodeo with Jesus. We know earlier on in Mark, they have had an encounter where the religious leaders thought stuff about Jesus and Jesus knew what they were thinking and revealed it. Mark says here, and I just think one of the biggest understatements, but they kept quiet. Yeah, I bet they did. <laughs> None of them are, in, are in, eager to go to Jesus. Hey, well, Jesus, glad you asked. We were actually arguing about which one of us you love the most, so... But this, this idea is not uncommon in this culture. This idea is not uncommon. The reality of living in a heavily class-oriented culture meant that rank and authority and influence and privilege were very important things. It's one of the reasons why Jesus addresses this so often in the New Testament. It's one of the reasons why he uses such intentional languages about first shall be last, last shall be first. What he's saying is the structure of this day is not what gives you value. It's not what gives you value. You seek after this, it'll never be enough. And so when he confronts them about it, they're just like, uh, nothing. Ever been caught having an embarrassing conversation? You ever been in a party and like you're talking with your friend and it's loud and you're like, yeah, man, I don't know. I've been going to the doctor for months and that rash just won't go away. And at that moment, like everybody stops talking and they look over at you and you're like, uh, Somebody's like, what were you guys talking about? Nothing? They got busted. They got busted. And it's embarrassing for them. I mean, they know it. They know that this was a problem. Their response shows us that they know this was a problem. And it's actually a very sobering picture because it's a very human picture. That Jesus, with his public ministry coming to a close, is spending his time preparing his disciples for what is to come. That's why he's teaching them privately. We see some of these indicators when it says Jesus sat down and called the 12. Rabbis would sit down to teach. I mean, we see these indications where he's teaching them multiple times in these short verses. He's trying to prepare them for what's next. So in a sense, while Jesus walks the road that will end in his brutal death for sins he did not commit, his disciples walk behind him arguing about who's the most impressive. 
Folks, what if Jesus asked you, what were you arguing about? That hurts a little bit, right? Think about the last kind of argument you had. In church, we got plenty of arguments because we got lots of opinions. We got plenty of arguments. We got plenty of arguments culturally right now. Think about, think about if Jesus said to you, what, were, what, were, what was the last thing you were arguing about? You eager to tell him? No. <laughs> right? That's a bleak picture, right? It gives us a picture of our heart. It gives us a picture of what Jesus is calling us out of and what he's calling us to. Disciples have flaws, and so do we. He's teaching these guys because he loves them, because he wants to prepare them for what's next. He wants them to understand that there is more to this thing than healing the sick and casting out demons, that the priority for a disciple is simply to follow him. There's three things that Jesus outlines here that we get to see. Three things that disciples do. Three things that Jesus does and invites his disciples into as well. And the first thing is this. Disciples follow Jesus by submitting. Disciples follow Jesus by submitting. We see that present here when Jesus outlines his mission, right? His purpose. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And the language there indicates not delivered by man, not delivered by Judas, but really delivered by divine order, but delivered by God, that this is God's purpose and God's plan. We'll see later on in Mark that this is one, this is a, a mission that Jesus undertook willingly, but not without cost. That there was pain involved in this, that though he did it, it was not easy. That Jesus submits to a plan that is not his own. Remember, Jesus has been sent by God. This is God's plan that his son has a part in. Disciples follow Jesus by submitting. That's hard for us because we don't like submitting. We only use submit in a bad way. Like submit only has negative connotations, right? Submit means to give up. Submit means to concede. Even when you have to submit paperwork, it sounds like you've done something wrong. We don't like to submit because we think we know best. We got this. I got this, God. I got this. If you just, you know, make a couple things happen, my plan's good. My, uh, my five-year-old and I like to play this uh, puzzle game, this kind of like escape the room game on my iPad. And he loves to do it. 80% of the reason I think is he just like screens. 19% because I think he just, it's like he likes the stuff back that stuff move. And 1% probably because I'm there. But let's be honest. If there was a robot that could play this game, he'd love that robot too. But so he'll come over and, you know, sometimes it's easy stuff. Just point and click on the screen. And sometimes you have to solve these complex puzzles. And I got one the other day that I could not figure out. And I was like, oh man, I'm frustrated by this thing. I cannot figure out how it goes. And he's like, oh, oh, daddy, I got it. I got it. I got it. And he's just po poking the screen. I'm like, no, that's not, oh, you're un, no, that's not it. You're, you're undoing all of the, like, I, I didn't have it, but you've undone all of the little things that I've done. I was like, this is, and so I keep working a little more. He's like, no, no, I got it. Daddy, just, daddy, just trust me. I got it. I, I, let me do this. Let me do this. And what I want to look at him and say is, hey, buddy, you don't got it. You can't read yet. You don't know what these words are saying. <laughs> Frankly, buddy, if you can figure this out, we need to enroll you in MIT immediately. <laughs> you, you don't have this. You don't have this, and that's okay. 
You do not have this. It's cute that he thinks he knows, but he definitely doesn't. God must look at us the same way. Right, when we tell God, I got this, God must look at us and go, that is adorable. You are so wrong. (laughs) How's that worked out for you the past 30, 40, 50 years? Is it going well? We don't know. We don't want to submit. But disciples follow Jesus by submitting. The implication being we trust that someone knows better than we do. We trust that if Jesus is willing to submit to his father's plan, Jesus not only gives us a template to follow, but Jesus enables us to do that. Jesus calls us to submit as disciples because it's our way of saying, God, you know better than I do. And for the love, I need your help. Second thing we see here that Jesus talks about is disciples follow Jesus by serving. Disciples follow Jesus by serving. Think about what's been going on in the book of Mark, the stuff we've talked about, right? Like compare and contrast like the ministry of the disciples in the first half of Mark with with what Jesus is laying out here. Because what's he talk about? He says, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of of all. And that's the point where you hear that, you're going, wait a minute, sorry, what? Uh... That doesn't sound so appealing. I like the kingdom of heaven stuff. Can we get back to that? I like the whatever you do in my name, you can do. Like, can we, is there, can we do more of that part? What is this servant of all stuff? Because these are guys who mostly have been lifted up from the fringes of, of, the, of the society. But Jesus lays this out and that's very different from what they've been doing, right? They've been going out healing. They've been going out performing miracles. They've got authority. They're Jesus's guys. That comes with some credibility. That comes with some cachet. And now Jesus is saying this different stuff. He goes on to take this little child and say, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Man, the second half of Mark is about to be very, very different than the first half. And it's not what the disciples were hoping. Because Jesus is explaining why he's come. To lower himself so that he might lift others up. To be the servant of all. To care for the the uncared for and the marginalized. To serve that way is to put others' needs before yourself. That's what's for your own. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Putting the needs of others before your own. So in a way, if you look really hard, I mean, if you squint, maybe the Eagles losing in the Super Bowl was actually like a really spiritual thing that they did. Maybe it was like a really good thing. Hey, they're putting the needs of the Chiefs and Andy Reid above their own. Okay, okay. I'll find a silver lining in that. Anyone who wants to be first, which clearly they do, because they were just arguing about it, must be the very last. Remember, that whole greatest argument is based in authority, position, status, honor. Jesus is saying, willingly give those things up to be a part of society that is on the fringes to willingly choose to be marginalized for the sake of others. Why why would I do that? Why would I want that? The the picture of a child really just hammers this home because children in this context are very different than children in our context. I read one scholar that said in a Roman culture, they estimate 
50% of children would, li would live beyond the age of 15. Mortality rate was incredibly high and infanticide was a culturally accepted practice in the Roman world. If you had a child with a deformity, if you had a child that was, a, uh, really, it was a female, if you had a girl and you wanted a boy, if you had a child you just didn't want, if you had a child out of an affair that you didn't want to keep because you didn't want to get in trouble, there were literally places in the city you could just leave this child, just leave it out in the open. And if they didn't die, they would be taken and almost always became slaves. It's how they fed their slave labor force. This is not the view of children we hold today, right? Children are valued very highly, and frankly, in our culture, can even almost be idolized by parents. I'm a parent, I got four kids, I can understand that. That's not what it was now. Think of the 50s mantra, our children are to be seen and not heard on steroids. But Jesus here takes a child and said, whoever welcomes one of these little children, essentially whoever invites into relationship, whoever cares for, right? Whoever invites in as a friend or as a family member, whoever invites them in invites me in, and whoever invites me in invites God in. What he's saying is whoever cares for the marginalized, whoever cares for those on the fringes, whoever cares for those who, does not, who do not have an expectation to be cared for, welcomes God himself in. That's a radically different viewpoint. It's a radically different viewpoint. Must be the servant of all. That's not what they expected from the Messiah. That's not what they expected. They're going, wait a minute, not only are you going to die, but we got to like serve others. What, what is going on here? But a disciple comes to serve. And here's the simple reason why. Because if Jesus himself came to serve, who are we to not do the same? What arrogance would it take for us to understand what Jesus has done for us to go, you came to serve me, but I owe you nothing. I owe you nothing. Frankly, when we understand the nature of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, God's movement towards us to rescue us and redeem us to himself, how can we not serve others when we realized how greatly we have been served? How can we not? Disciples follow Jesus by serving. And the last thing that Jesus outlines is disciples follow Jesus by sacrificing. Jesus knows that his path leads to sacrifice. He knows it. Imagine how hard that road must have been to walk. When Jesus says, follow me, that means it's the disciples' road too. Jesus referred to as the suffering servant, right? If the servant came to suffer, what, what, what hope do his followers have to not experience that as well? Sometimes we are so caught off guard by suffering. Sometimes I am so caught off guard by suffering. It's like, did I forget like the whole purpose of this? Jesus has been clear about this. And frankly, we can't submit without sacrifice. We can't serve without sacrifice. Discipleship has a cost to it. There are times that we want to think, particularly in the American church, the North American church, that I can follow Jesus and slot that into a corner of my life while I do everything else the way that I would normally do it. But I can't. And so that means we have to confront the ugly truth that I don't always want to be a disciple. 
If our view of following Jesus is that it's easy, we do not understand what that means. It's hard. It means dying to ourselves. It means surrendering control to another. It means saying we don't know what's best. It means saying life is gonna be hard. What it also means though, is we experience a freedom and a joy that we will never know any other way. That God is not a cosmic bully saying, I just wanna see people be miserable, right? God doesn't work that way. God is saying, I know you and I know how your life was created to be lived. I know what you need. I know what makes you tick. And I want you to experience life and life to the fullest. Because think about it. When I do those things, even though they're hard, I don't regret doing them. The regrets that I have are when I don't. I don't regret serving others. I complain about it beforehand. Sometimes internally, if I'm smart, sometimes out loud, if I'm not. But I've never done something for my wife and thought afterwards, that was a waste. What do you think afterwards when you serve someone else? What do you think? Ah, I should be doing this more. Because it scratches an itch in our soul that isn't scratched any other way because it is how God has created us to live. But we gotta get past that personal part first. I don't really want to serve, right? That's inconvenient. It's not what I want. That can't be right, serving others, putting other needs first. That's not how I find my best life, right? That's not how I find my joy. I, I, gotta, I know what's best. I gotta, I gotta determine my own path. Is that true or is that my sinful nature telling me, you, you know what's best? When we're confronted with those thoughts of why would I wanna give my life away, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what better way is there to spend it? what better way is there to spend it? Because that's what Jesus has called us into. In in laying out Jesus's mission, Jesus lays out our mission too, to follow him in his mission. We live out our purpose when we live in his mission. Jesus has come to rescue and redeem a broken and lost people and we get included in that. We don't do this to get something out of it. We do this because of what's already been done for us, that we have been loved, that we are cherished, we are treasured, that we're invited into the king's family. Jesus doesn't need disciples here, but Jesus includes these men and invites us into to be part of the winning team. Jesus is like, hey, spoiler alert, you get to find out who wins and you get to have stock in it from the very beginning. Would that be interesting to you? And us and our sinful hearts are like, no, I don't know, Jesus. Can you sweeten the deal? Fine, your life will be richer and more full than you can imagine. Life eternal with God in heaven, your creator knows you and loves you. And still, a lot of us are like, I'm not so sure, Jesus. It can't get better than that. It can't get better than that. My grandfather flew B-17s in World War II in, in Europe. He was a pilot. This guy was so cool. Love this man. Love this man. And when we could get him to tell stories, he would explain kind of like what he did and, and just kind of why they did it. And so they developed this strategy, right? The B-17 was a high altitude bomber. It was just 
super technologically advanced for the era. And they'd realize that they would fly in formation. It's how they could protect themselves against German fighters. And they'd have a bomb site and only in the lead planes, really in the lead plane, that was the goal, right? Because here's what they'd realized. Our best and most effective method here is to have the lead plane know what they're doing and have everybody else follow the lead plane. The vast majority of planes didn't even have a bomb site because they didn't need it. It was follow the lead plane. When the lead plane went on a bombing run, you went on the bombing run too. When the lead plane opened its doors, you opened your doors. When the lead plane dropped its bombs, you dropped your bombs. When the lead plane turned for home, you went for home. You follow the lead plane. You wanna know how to survive? You follow the lead plane. Being a disciple is about following the lead plane. Following Jesus' example empowered by the work Jesus has done on our behalf and the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. This isn't about trying harder and white knuckling. This is about surrendering, serving, sacrificing. Because the path to the life that we desperately want is not found the way we would choose it. It's found in the most counterintuitive way possible. Frankly, part of the reason that Christianity resonates with me is it's not the religion I would make. Man, I'd make one where the harder I tried, the more brownie points I got. I definitely wouldn't make one where surrendering and service and lowering myself and lifting others up was the path. Because that's not fun. But isn't it really where we find meaning? The life of a disciple mirrors Jesus. Disciples gain status in service. Disciples find honor in humility. Disciples live in dying. A disciple is someone who experiences and extends the love of Jesus. If you've been coming to church for here for a while, we're glad that you're here. We're glad you're part of this family. What we want to challenge you is really to echo what Jess said earlier. What does it look like for you to take a step and move towards being a disciple? Move towards being more of a disciple, to orienting your life more around Jesus, to saying, how do I be in and, and part of what God is doing? Not saying I'm going to find my little slice of this. We don't want to be a church of churchgoers who consume spiritual goods and services. We want to be a church of disciples who follow Jesus. There is no greater calling than that. And if you're new here, I want you to hear me say, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. We hope you hear a message that is not based in guilt or shame or obligation, but a message that is based in the freedom that Jesus has won. That we are invited into his family. That nothing we could ever do could separate us from the love that God has for us through his son when we know him. That the purpose and longing that we seek is found in the God who created us and knows us and loves us. What does it look like for us to be disciples? Why don't you bow your heads with me? Father God, we thank you for that hope. We thank you that that is true. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done on our behalf. 
Father, what a powerful picture to read that it's not just what you ask of us, but it is what Jesus has come to do first. You've made it simple, not easy, but simple. Follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Not because of when we do, you love us, Lord, but we follow because you already do. We follow because of what you've already done. Father, would you draw our hearts to you that we would understand more what it means to be known and loved by you each day. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.